0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now.
0: Hello. Uh, quick reminder, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show. Every single episode is available for free, including my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Hilton Als, Jonathan Franzen, Tao Lin, Susan Orlean, Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julewitz Who else? I'm trying to think. Jonathan Franzen? Did I say that? There's a lot of them. Check out the archives. It is all available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Review the show on iTunes. That helps. Or if you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. Thank you.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I I have 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 a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, do I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Gee, they didn't they didn't what it. a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, you uh, Bradley Steve. Just one person at just one time. Hello, how's right. it going, everybody? Right.
0: Welcome to the 600th episode of the Other People podcast. So, 600 episodes and 8 years as well the podcast just celebrated its 8th birthday on September 14th which if i'm being honest it slipped my mind a little bit i think the 14th was a saturday which means i was probably chasing my kids around or you know busy doing something and i forgot but then i remembered and uh 8 years 600 episodes that's hard to believe my guest is Sarah M. Broom. I could not be more pleased to have her as my 600th guest. She has a memoir out called The Yellow House, and it is available from Grove Press. And uh, there are few books in any given year that are received like The Yellow House is being received. I should mention that it was just longlisted for the National Book Award in nonfiction. And in general, if you're the kind of person who pays attention to this sort of thing... The reviews, the blurbs have uh, been hitting very high heights. There's just a lot of excitement, and it's hard not to notice. And then you get the book, and you open it, and you start reading, and you understand exactly why. So I feel very lucky to have Sarah M. Broom uh, on the program here to celebrate 600 episodes, but more to the point to celebrate the publication of her superb memoir, uh, she was kind enough to make time for me when she was here in Los Angeles and we had an excellent conversation that I'm very excited to share with you in just a moment. So, uh, what do I say about 600 episodes? I feel like it's kind of an arbitrary number, right? But it is a big round number. It is eight years. So all I can say is thank you. Thank you to everybody who has been with me from the start. Thank you to everybody who jumped in somewhere in the middle or to new listeners. I appreciate it. Uh, I should add that the podcast listenership continues to grow. Uh, For those of you who have been listening recently, I made a point of uh, underlining this in a recent monologue that ever since, you know, early summer, the podcast listenership has been growing by more than 50% month over month. I don't know why but it's happening and I'm very uh, gratified or very gratified. I'm very grateful. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, I do this show because I love to do the show. I love to help uh, writers, you know, to help get the word out about books. I think it's a worthy cause and I just enjoy it. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy having an opportunity to talk with such smart, creative people. I enjoy being able to have a conversation In the absence of cell phones, which is such a rarity in modern life, it's really important to me. I clearly need it. And, uh, I don't know, what what can I say? It's hard to give up really smart, you know, creative, brilliant people come over to my house and talk to me. And, uh, it's fun to make this show. So I uh, am happy to do it. I'm happy to make it free. All of it is available for free. It didn't used to be that way. There used to be a paywall back in the day, uh, where you got like 50 episodes for free and then there was a subscription, but I I took that down years ago and it's, you know, it's really uh, something I'm proud of. This entire library is available for free. This is a listener supported show and it's just there for you if you want it. So, uh, I hope to keep doing it for a long time. I always joke on uh, social media that I'm going to keep going till I'm 90 and I'm going to make three thousand episodes in my life. We'll see if that holds true. but regardless, it's been a really fun ride. I'm grateful to everybody who listens. I'm grateful to everybody who has been kind enough to guest on this program and make it what it is. So I do have some mail I want to get to quickly uh regarding last week's episode episode five ninety eight uh, it, it was uh, my conversation with Kimberly King Parsons, whose story collection, Blacklight, was just long-listed for the National Book Award in Fiction. So how, you know, how do you like that? Uh, a listener named Ruth writes, I loved listening to this episode. I'm so excited to read Blacklight. A listener named Shannon writes, Fantastic interview. I loved it. I loved Kimberly. I also want to let you know that the movie uh, that in the movie Boyhood... They do shrooms in Big Bend National Park, a very different part of West Texas than Lubbock. So what Shannon is referring to is a part of the conversation where Kimberly and I are talking about Texas, which is the state uh, from which Kimberly hails. It's her home state where she was born and raised. It is also the setting for much of her book, uh, if not all of it. If I'm, you know I have to... I think that's what it is. It's all Texas stories, but she writes a lot about Texas and Texans and all that that entails. And I was asking her about that scene in boyhood where they're shrooming. It's this beautiful landscape. And of course, Texas is this grand, it's, you know, grand expanse with this great variety of, uh, landscapes. And I didn't know where that was. So thank you, Shannon. It's big bend national park. Uh, a listener whose Twitter handle is at simulating you writes, Uh, New listener here, the Kimberly King Parsons episode brought me, I cannot wait to read Blacklight. Anyway, your podcast is exactly what I've been looking for. I wish my fruitless Google searches for the top 10 writers' podcasts could have brought me earlier. Well, thank you. I appreciate you uh, writing. I'm glad you found the show. I hope you enjoy it. There's 600 episodes for you if you want them. Go get them. As for Google, I don't know how to do that. You know, like search engine optimization, that seems exhausting. Like, What do you do? The only thing I can think of would be if some journalist wrote about it, you know? So if you're out there and you're a journalist and you want to write about my show to improve its uh, Google ranking or whatever, I would appreciate that. And finally, a listener named Olivia writes, Dear Brad, can I call you Brad? I discovered the podcast when I listened to your episode with Steve Almond. I absolutely loved it. I was excited to return to the podcast, and I just listened to the episode with Kimberly King Parsons. It was also good, but you interrupted her over and over and over again. It was so painful. Why couldn't you give her the space to talk and express herself that you gave to Steve Almond? I mean, you even interrupted her when she was talking about her experience of giving birth. That shit is sacred. Let a woman finish a sentence. She, espe- she, especially if she is Kimberly King Parsons, will probably say something more interesting than whatever you just had to blurt out right then. She never once interrupted you mid-thought. Dude's got to work on this. Put on your straw hat and do the right thing. Best, Olivia. Olivia. Well, thank you, Olivia. I appreciate you listening and taking the time to write to me. I apologize for the interruptions. I didn't realize I was even doing that. I should also mention that the straw hat in question is something I've been talking about recently. I've been wearing an obnoxious straw hat for much of the summer in an effort to protect my skin. I'm very pale, and uh, I I burn easily. But... um, yeah. You know, I thought I gave a lot of thought to Olivia's letter after I received it, like wondering, like, was well, this a problem for me or people secretly or quietly uh, suffering through interviews where I'm constantly interrupting people? I think sometimes I'm really jacked on caffeine when I talk to people. Sometimes that happens. I'll be having a guest over and I'll just have too much coffee or tea or whatever it is. And I just feel chatty. <laughs> And sometimes I'm just excited, you know, it's exciting to do the show or I'm a little nervous, you know, that happens too. You just get a little like wired, but it's certainly not intentional. Uh, You know, I'm just like trying to have a good conversation and make the thing good. And, uh, you know, I even reached out to Kimberly and I was like, Oh my God, I shared the email with her. And I was like, did I interrupt you? I'm really sorry. And she was like, no, I didn't think so. And then I was like, Oh great. And I felt relieved And then I was like, well, wait, she's probably just being polite. She probably really does think I was interrupting her. And then I got these other letters where people were like, we loved it, including women. You know, it wasn't just guys. It was like women were like, this was a great conversation. So I don't know what to think, but I am going to take it to heart. I think generally, you know, obviously I babble here at the top of the show a little bit, uh, usually less than this, but you know, it's the 600th episode. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like in the interviews, the less of me you get probably the better, right? I'm just there to sort of nudge the process along and be a surrogate for the listener and ask the questions that the uh, folks at home are probably asking themselves, right? Okay. So thanks again, Olivia. Thanks to everybody who took the time to write to me. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at other PPL.com. And thank you one more time to everybody out there who listens to the program, whether you're new to the show or you've been with me for years. I appreciate it. Also, thank you one more time to everybody who has ever guested on this podcast. The show would not exist without you. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. My guest today is Sarah M. Broom. Her memoir, The Yellow House, is out there now. From Grove Press, it is long listed for the National Book Award in Nonfiction. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is my six hundredth guest, Sarah M. Broom, and her memoir, One More Time, is called The Yellow House.
2: I feel like that's my experience also, which is Louisiana just feels like a sensory experience. Yeah. And there are all these things we kind of feel in our bodies, as I did as a child growing up there. And it's so fun as an adult to think about what was that feeling I had.
0: Well, and you say, too, I think I think this is you, you said, like, the humidity in New Orleans is a mood. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, that air works on you and the smells and the Mississippi and the food and, like, yeah. all of it. You know, it's a yeah. like, really rich um, and kind of overwhelming and it definitely sticks with you. Um, and you know, another thing I was kind of thinking, uh, half jokingly as I was reading is that like, what does Sarah think when people like just meeting you for the first time, not knowing, mm-hmm. uh, who you are maybe, or what your background is or what you do for a living or mm-hmm. like, so where are you from? <laughs> 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 like, You're like, sit down. Right. I, <laughs> I got a, I got a story Long for you. Long story. Long story. Right. But, yeah. um, I think maybe a, a good place to start is to talk about the ways in which you conceived of your book uh architecturally. Mm. Like you're writing about a, a house. That's not you know that's just the beginning of what you're writing about but that's sort of the, the framing device. Mm-hmm. And you thought explicitly about architecture and about architectural motif and about the ways in wh- like the sequence in which a house is built. Sure. Can you can you talk about that part of it and when that came to you, like as in the writing process, was this something that like you saw retrospectively or was this something that was there from the start?
2: You know, that's a great question. The first, well, I remember one of the first things I did was get these index cards and write each room of the house because the house that I grew up in was a Camelback shotgun. So just running sort of like, I guess they call it a railroad apartment in New York. But I remember writing on each of these note cards, each room of the house, so living room you know, um, mom and dad's room, kitchen, small bathroom, and then laying the cards out on the floor and, and just looking at them for a really long time and thinking, what are the clues here for how I might organize this book? Because I was trying to think of the book also as a kind of house, right, that needed a specific architecture. And I was interested in you know, when you sort of go to someone's house, right, you don't just bust in and end up in the bedroom, right? There's there's a kind of pathway you follow. And, and I was thinking, how do you set up thresholds in a book? You know, how does the reader feel when they're moving through it? You know, what's the familial space? And what's the kind of public space? And so that was... Um, it, it came to me at the very beginning that I needed to be contextualizing it um, in that way. And then over time, it became clearer in the sense that I understood what sort of undergirded the book and what where the beams were. So like, for instance, the role my mother would come to play in the narrative and storytelling. And, and so she's sort of like a bit of the framing of the book and of the the book is a house so to speak right and and i set up the beginning so that you pass slowly through it um before you kind of get into the heart of things right and so it does feel strangely now as this a little bit of a a house a facsimile of a house
0: so let's take uh listeners yeah perhaps can we go in through the front door like would you do that? Like, you yeah. know, just so people, because you say like a shotgun house, I, I think I know what that is. Cause we used to talk about it sure. when I would go down and visit family in Louisiana, like my dad would be like, that's a shotgun house like right. next to my grandparents. Yep. Um, and it's just usually, it's like you go in and it's just room, 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 it's room, room. It's room room.
2: room, room, room. And there's no, so there's no hallway. That's the identifying feature. So in our house, for instance, you went in through the front door and you, there was the living room. And then you pass through that room to get to the bedroom. And then you pass through that room. And then you're in the kitchen. And through that room, you're in another bedroom. So there's no side hall. You know, you have to walk through each room. And what was interesting about that house was there were three doors to the, the house I grew up in. The front door was like the formal door. So if you were the insurance guy trying to collect payment... Right. Those are back in the days, how it worked. You would enter, you know, in the front door. If you were familial, you were a neighbor wanting to borrow salt. You came to the side door. If you were family and you really knew the layout of the house, you went to the back door.
0: And where did that take you into?
2: And that took you into the den of the house. Oh, it did. Okay. Which was like the family room for us. That makes you know? sense
0: that that would be the place you come in. Yeah. And was there what was the front
2: room? So the front room was uh, like the formal room, Uh you know, so the nicest sofas were and my mother was a a design obsessive. So she had these, you know, very curved pieces of furniture And that room was like the pretty room, you know, that was
0: we always called that the living room. I know, right? And then there was the family room.
2: Yeah, it, it, it technically is backwards because that front formal room isn't where most living happened.
0: No, yeah, exactly. No one ever even you know, went in there. It should
2: be called the formal room. Or just like the room nobody <laughs> uses. The room no- yes, <laughs> we didn't, we, you know, we it was like at the end we used it a lot more because it was such a pretty room. But yeah, it, it, there was not a lot of living happening there.
0: But it is like the room that if some like, guests come to the front door, you want to you know, put on your best. It's
2: the presentation of the self. Right. Which, you know, is intriguing to me because it's, it's presenting the self you, uh, aspirationally think yourself to be, but aren't maybe really. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. You know, I, like I think a lot about, or your book definitely made me think about it, but I think sometimes like I'm not a person, I don't care about clothes. Mm-hmm. I don't care about cars. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I like I care like I don't want to look like a slob I, as I sit here in a t-shirt and, like running oh, shorts come on or... you don't look like a slob. <laughs> but you know what I mean like I'm not any kind sure. of like fashion person. Um but I do like having a like I like a space like a living space I think too cuz I work from home mm-hmm. a lot. Um like home really matters. Mm-hmm. Uh if you don't have uh, and, and I think taking care of it matters. Sure. And like wanting it to be like your mom, wanting mm-hmm. like it to be nicely designed and mm-hmm. clean. Like I'm totally that way. Yeah. Like I think more so than anybody in my family. Really? <laughs> I'm the clean one. Oh. Um, but uh, I don't know. There's something to that. I feel like there's, I think when you take care of that, it's good for your brain.
2: For your sort of psychological well-being.
0: Do you feel that way?
2: I do. I love places. I love to make a room. It's one of my favorite things on earth. Yeah. But I also think of myself as a kind of room. And I think you can, going back to what you said a minute ago, you don't have to be into fashion to have style. And I think about that when it comes to our homes, too. You know how I think it's really hard to make people feel warm inside of a space and cozy and at home. Yeah. Right. It's, it's actually a hard thing to do.
0: It is. And I so appreciate it. And I actually find that in the South, maybe people have, um, like in general, have a better sense of this than other places I've lived, mm-hmm. certainly Los Angeles, which is just that social grace and that ability, maybe that, I don't know if it's design sense or mm-hmm. just that the culture of food and connectivity where it's like they do make you sort of feel at home. Come on over and have a drink and you want something to eat and here's a cookie or whatever it is. And, um, I always love people who can do that well and sort of envy it a little bit. Yeah. It's really a gift. Um, do you feel like you could do it?
2: Absolutely. I love to do it. I mean, that, that is something that I really wanted to explore in the book, right? Because, you know, at the, the moment in, in our life, when we weren't inviting a lot of people over to our house, which was this beautiful place my mother had made it it really felt cr- a little bit creepy to not have people over coming over and, and why,
0: why why and why for listeners were you not inviting people over? So
2: we weren't. So after a time, uh, the house started to essentially fall down around us. There was just there were so many children in it. I'm one of twelve, and my father died when I was a baby, six months. And my mother was essentially maintaining the house by herself. And so, you know, houses entropy, that's literally the thing they do. Um, And there just wasn't enough money to fix it up and keep it going. It wasn't a tiny house either, right? Um, It was quite long and composed of many rooms. And so because the house came to, my mother felt very deeply that in its sort of last days, so to speak, the house didn't represent who she thought herself to be in the world, you know, and and that created a feeling of shame inside of her. And, uh, you know, she stopped, we couldn't bring our friends over and she stopped inviting people over and we sort of became more, we belonged more to each other in a strange way and even to the house, you know. And I remember just being a kid and feeling like I was hiding the house. What you did know? your mom
0: say to you when you were a kid around this?
2: She was saying over and over, you know, this house isn't comfortable for other people, which was confusing to me because I thought, but we're other people. We're people. What kid- do you mean?
0: And kids don't care.
2: Kids don't. Yeah. And I I realized, you know, the moment I sort of left the house and was at college and in my dorm room, the way in which not inviting people in was us going against our nature it was so uh not who we were and and then i could realize the force of that you know the force of not having people in our house and sort of hiding some part of ourselves.
0: so now do you like uh, like all these years later as an adult like are you one of these people who has like dinner parties all the time all the I'm time i'm
2: obsessed with having people over damn it's, be because better. when you come over for me when i bring you to my house I'm telling you so much about my feeling for you. It's a big deal for me. Yeah. I only invite people in who I really uh, am letting to a kind of a layer of myself that other people don't get to see. But I love to do it.
0: Yeah, I got to do it more. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because my kids are young and like mm-hmm. they're sleeping. It's like hard. Sure. To, I'm like, is it going to be too loud? And right. one of the kids wakes up. It's maybe at a, I'm in a phase of my life where it's harder. But then I also feel like and this might just be me, mm-hmm. I feel like it's hard.
2: Like to it's have hard people to, over? And to
0: organize it and mm. to get people to come. Mm. Maybe this is an LA thing or it's mm. just a me thing. Like I wonder. Logistically, like you, you you put out an invite, it's easy basically. People say yes. So. Yeah.
2: People generally always say yes. But I'm I'm an incredible cook. Uh-huh. You know, I get that from my mother. So I always make a New Orleans dish. I make like gumbo or shrimp. Creole or crawfish étouffée or something uh, like that.
0: Is it? But is it the same?
2: I feel like it's solely sh- the same. Is but it? I, but you have to know where to go because I live in New York City, so that's what I mean. I go to Chinatown, which is the biggest problem because I live uptown, and then I go all the way downtown to Canal Street
0: to get the shrimp. I have and- to get
2: the shrimp with the heads on them uh. because you know, critically, you have to have the shrimp with the heads for any good gumbo, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Because you boil the shrimp heads and then you use the juice of that to make uh the roux essentially you know the the sort of base of it the taste yeah so then what you have um which is aptly sort of like writing a book you have this very layered you know dish right Mm -hmm. that has the flavors kind of throughout it as opposed to on top of it right right yeah and that that to me is what makes new orleans cooking new orleans cooking
0: yeah, I agree. Like My grandmother used to make gumbo every Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and it was so good. Mm-hmm. And it kind of ruined me for other gumbos.
2: Right, like, you yeah. Know, like you go, well, everybody has their own gumbo, really.
0: Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I always thought, like, what is it? Like, is it the, it's the way it was cooked? It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. like the Gulf shrimp just tastes different. <laughs> Though maybe they do.
2: <laughs> I think they do, actually. Yeah, right?
0: <laughs> I'm like, I don't think you can get the shrimp anywhere else. You've got to go down there. There's something in the water. Um,
2: Maybe not so good, that thing in the water. But hey, it tastes great. (laughs) (laughs) These petrochemicals are excellent. (laughs) Uh, So, okay.
0: So just to make sure listeners are oriented, um, your book, Mm -hmm. memoir, 14 Years in the Making, Mm -hmm. uh, published on the 14th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Right. Um, Your your house, the Yellow House, was Mm -hmm. lost in Hurricane Katrina.
2: Right. It was demolished after a year after the storm.
0: But to call this um just so people listening who haven't mm-hmm. read, to call this a Katrina book isn't isn't the whole story. Oh no. There's a lot in this book. Just as you're talking about with Gumbo, like this mm-hmm. is a, a stew of a lot of different things um that come together beautifully and speak to um not just a, a New Orleanian experience um, or an african American mm-hmm. New Orleanian experience, but mm-hmm. to, I, it goes larger this is sure. about this is about uh, systemic injustice, systemic uh, inequality in america mm-hmm. and uh, I guess was that your ambition like from the start mm-hmm. you know because I always wonder when books have this big of a resonance and play as many notes Mm -hmm. as your book plays Mm. like is that something you just sort of arrived at or Mm. is that something that was there from the start like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna build it like a house Mm -hmm. i'm gonna do it in these different movements it's gonna play like music Mm. you know i love that or or is it something you um you sort of work your way to um Mm. through in fits and starts you know and then you know by the time you get to the end you're like oh wow Look what I did.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that I ever said, look what I did, but I know what you mean. And I love that you are talking about play, play, you know, the idea of music and just, I think it's a little bit of everything you said, but the other thing that is key to it for me goes actually back to the idea of what a Katrina book means, because the idea of quote Katrina book is, is like a horrendous notion to me because what what uh exists inside those two words in that phrase is the idea that we can like pigeonhole an event like that and and um for me that completely misses the point and that was really so much of the drive for me of the book is how do you create a story which is about all these really big things but is also a little bit banal in a sense that is about Ordinary people and the very ordinariness of their life. And I had a sort of idea in theory that if we could just tell, if I could tell really closely and with this granular detail, the story of this family and how they sort of came to be, existentially speaking and literally, how did they arrive on this particular street and this particular neighborhood and what were their fears and sort of concerns that somehow if I stuck stuck really closely to that story I could blow out some very big ideas that the family would essentially refract right these really big ideas about how soft the ground was and the strangeness of this place and you know um American meritocracy, for instance, and even mapping, right? So I think over time as I was working, I realized, oh shit, I'm, oops, oh, sorry, I cursed. No, it's I don't okay. Know if that's, you
0: can say whatever you want.
2: You know, but I, I really understood that I was wrangling a lot of different things at once because I think part of how my brain works is that a lot of these things are intertwined and a little bit crisscrossed. And I never wanted to pull them apart. And that's very tricky when you're writing, right? So there were a lot of moments where I had to isolate certain things I was trying to do. So, for instance, in some later drafts, I was reading the book only for the character of Chef Mature Highway, which was this sort of dangerous highway in New Orleans East that means chief liar, <laughs> you know, is translated to chief liar in French, and and was... A kind of highway that that we all had to cross to get to the rest of our lives so to get to school and the grocery store and that was so ironic to me right but there were moments where i was just reading for that one that that highway as character like finding those notes just finding the notes and thinking about the arc of that and how chef mentor sort of runs through the book
0: and and yeah for people listening uh the yellow house and where you grew up is Mm -hmm. in a part of new orleans called new orleans east right. which you are careful to point out most people who visit new orleans as tourists or passing through or they come for a convention or mm-hmm. whatever they have no idea it even exists i'll be honest i didn't know yeah and i grew up going down there every single year yeah and so you talk about i mean you know, the section of the book is called uh, map am mm-hmm. i remembering
2: yeah is that what it right. is Right, the beginning of it yeah yes
0: and uh you mapped you're mapping the city for people I am and you're staking out uh, and naming these places so that um, they can't be erased yes and so that people like me and people who don't have familiarity with New Orleans understand that there is this entire part of the city that on your you know your rent a car map or your tourist map. Mm-hmm doesn't even
2: it doesn't it doesn't tell you about and i'm intrigued by those places i mean the beginning of the book the section called map i thought i wrote it last at the very end mm. and i thought how do i make a map with words right like a kind of verbal map and um you know and and what's interesting about that section is i wanted to essentially describe the book And and give the reader a literal map also of the book itself, because that that beginning section contains all the notes in a sense, in essence. Right. Right. And then each of the movements, which is how I've organized the book, sort of play out those notes. Right. But but they're all sort of contained in the beginning. And they're also a kind of here's how to read the book um and to think of the book so now i really love that section and it's the section i read most when i go around because Mm. it sort of contains all the ideas
0: why why did you write and i I mean it makes sense why you wrote it last because you had a full lay Mm -hmm. of the land at that point Mm -hmm. were you encouraged to write it or did the like was did your editor or your agent say hey you might want to orient people at the beginning or was that something you sort of arrived at yourself
2: i i felt it on my own that um just to sort of launch. What I wanted to do was not to be a tour guide actually, but to sort of provide the points. And, and, and that section does something that's sort of crucial for me. It, I launch into why the book was so transgressive feeling for me to write. And what I realized after I had written the draft was that I had to begin with how afraid I was and how I felt that this wasn't my story necessarily to tell. Well,
0: you're the baby of the family. The baby
2: of the family, right? Babies don't go around writing the history. The
0: babyist.
2: The babyist. <laughs> we don't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, my oldest brother should be writing this, you know? <laughs> so that section also does a really big emotional thing. Because by the end of map, I bring you to this house that I was taught visitors don't come to. And so it it also is doing many things at once in the sense that it's sort of uh, creating for me a space to take the reader beyond beyond there and to sort of um, wrestle a little bit with all of my mixed feelings having told the story, which I still have to this day, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, too, uh, you know, one of the interesting choices you make in the book is that in telling your own story, you don't begin with your birth. Mm-hmm. I think most, the conventional choice for writers would be like, I was born and said, you know, that would be kind of like the, <laughs> the starting point, but you go way back and you give yourself as a writer, a big, a much bigger job mm-hmm. because you're having to do uh, deep research. You're mm-hmm. working with limited resources to mm-hmm. try to find out about your grandmother and you're working through archives. I mean, can you, can you talk about that part of the book and the process, um, from like a nuts and bolts writerly Mm -hmm. perspective or journalistic perspective?
2: Sure. So the the idea to sort of begin before me was because I felt that in the story of myself, there were all of these absences and things I didn't know and that I needed to know more in order to put my own self in context, if that makes any sense. And I also am, uh, I love archives and I think of myself as a journalist on some level, but that was an enormous amount of work because all I had were basic sketches for stories. Maybe I had three stories, right? That my mother was born uh, here and my grandmother was born there. I had real just basic frames. And so I spent uh, maybe a solid year just in New Orleans, living in libraries and archives, the Louisiana collections everywhere, going to Catholic churches and looking at people's birth records and can census I, files. can
0: I ask you a question? yeah, this I should probably know the answer to this, but what do you what is it? you go to the archives in a library uh-huh And and let's say, give me an example of something you might be
2: looking for. Sure. So for instance, I um, was trying to track where my grandmother, my mother's mother, had grown up in New Orleans specifically. And so one thing that I would do is I would go, let's say, to the main library in New Orleans. And they actually have these very old city directories, which are very different from a phone book, right? These were people's addresses and what their jobs were. And the city stopped making them at a certain point. But, but during the years when my grandmother was growing up in New Orleans, the city directories existed. So you could actually, I could go and find the city directory, let's say, for 1941, which was the year my mother was born. And maybe my mother didn't remember exactly where they were living. But I could go and literally find my grandmother's name, find out who my grandmother was in the house with, what her job was, wow. what her phone number was, and address. Right, and so then that led me to to go then I could go, let's say, to the assessor's office and look up that address in that year and know, for instance, who owned the house huh. in nineteen forty one who my grandmother was renting from.
0: That's a lot of work.
2: It's a ton of work. I it mean, was so much work.
0: It's no wonder it took you fourteen years. I mean, it took
2: me a long time yeah you
0: gotta you gotta move through and get all these facts straight, sure, and you know. You you can't really tell the story you want to tell until you have that orientation.
2: That's true. And then my grandmother didn't leave behind things. So I was really thinking a lot about that, that there were no things that she had written. There were no notebooks. There were no letters. There was nothing from her. And then my grandmother's mother was a kind of blank space and absence. You know, my grandmother didn't know her mother. Her mother died. And so I was trying to track uh, her in the census records, and that was really hard because she was also this strange absence who would appear and then disappear
0: um it's it's amazing uh, i think about your book like what a gift your book is to your family mm-hmm. like that you have done this work like especially like i think of like nieces nephews descendants like they're going to have this like very deep strong record you know record Of where they come from
1: Mm,
2: that's Uh, the thing i'm most proud of i bet i'm telling you like when when i get emotional about this book it's because i think of my nieces and nephews reading it and i think there's something collated for them and and that was philosophically speaking the work of the book a kind of gathering together if you feel displaced or sort of scattered Mm. How can you gather together the pieces of yourself? And I love it when I see them reading the book. You know, they all want, they all have the ebook, and they're all, I hope they, they paid all want for the it. audio version. Yeah. They, they better be they, buying these copies. Oh, they buy the copies. Yes. They buy many copies, <laughs> right? you know, and they're kids mostly. Um, so that part is amazing, you know?
0: Yeah. It made me think because uh, it made me think about my emotional attachment to my homes like i moved mm. when i was a kid and moving was like a kind of trauma right? mm. i was in fifth grade it's weird to suddenly like lose basically everything you know like mm-hmm. all your friends sure the place you grew up uh i remember moving day and i remember very little i don't have a great like i don't have great recall for my past which is another mm-hmm. thing you, your book made me think of is like how much of our lives we have, just have no idea what the hell happened wow Right, so that'll be interesting in your book i yeah, I mean that's part of the maybe part of the problem, but um like doing the the hard, slow work that you did to try to put the pieces of the puzzle mm-hmm. together, you learn a lot you that, do that yeah. might not have been there to begin with, and then uh i I guess the point that I was driving at is that I don't really think about that house, mm. I revisited it two years ago, and I was with my dad. And we sort of stood out in front of it and took a picture Mm. and it was like, oh, wow, like there were a lot of memories, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, I mean, like, you know, the circumstances of your home, not only with respect to Katrina, but also I think respect with respect to the loss of your dad. Sure. Um, that's where he passed away. Yes. And so I think the house became intertwined with his absence for you and yes. you don't have memories because he was you were six months old, right
2: right and right. i i mean i think that's absolutely right it took on this huge presence in my life the house did and i didn't realize that really until i was writing the book i didn't understand why i was so obsessed with this place and you know that that house i think also was was It it was a spirited place because so many of us had passed through it. (laughs) You know, it just contained so much.
0: That's the other thing is that 12 kids,
2: 12 kids. And I just felt like the walls were the thing that first drove me was like, how do I write an autobiography of a house? Because this house was a witness. This house saw so much. Yeah. You know, this house can tell the story of itself, you know. And that's, that, that's the whole thing. Like, if we imagine that the walls, you know, have these, like, humans sort of embossed in them, right? Mm. Um, that, that's such an intriguing idea for me.
0: Well, and it's also, like, a, an act of, like, resuscitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you must have felt... Like, you know, the book sort of builds, uh, like one of the reviews was like, it's like a way you can feel like a wave coming, mm. like as you're moving through the different moments A movements. review said that? Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. Oh. Um, that's th- certainly the feeling I get as a reader is like, okay, you mm-hmm. know, that, that hurricane is coming, mm-hmm. um, or you can sense it. And so, uh, I would imagine like losing the house and losing it in that way and having to witness all that. Um you feel like you lose a part of yourself and you sort of die. Like Mm. I I think about moving and I always like joke around. I was like, it's like a dress rehearsal for death. You know, (laughs) you're like, okay, okay, I lost everything I know. Right. And then you go to this new place Mm -hmm. and you sort of born again and you have to like start all over again. But, um, I guess my question for you is in the act of doing the work to write this book, uh solving these little mysteries mm-hmm. doing all this research laying it down mm-hmm. and seeing it all the way through
1: mm-hmm.
0: do you don't you don't you have a sense of like having rescued a certain part of yourself
1: mm. do
0: you have that like that you feel like might otherwise have been lost like were you mm-hmm. fighting against that uh, and was that part of the the central motivation to write it
2: you know i think yes in a way i mean one of the 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 things that come to mind is during... I spent a lot of time in a Central East African country called Burundi. And one of my first experiences there was going into a classroom of small children and taking photographs with them. And the kids... Th- this was like back in the day before like everyone was walking around with the cell phone. And the kids showing the kids immediately the image of themselves on the digital camera... And them yelling out, I exist, I exist, (laughs) it's me. And and there was this moment, I think, in the work for me, where I realized that I felt invisible, cut off, you know, and that was the feeling of being off the map. Mm. And there was a kind of energetic, frantic work I was doing to say, no, 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 I'm writing these people into existence because we we are a place, right? right? We might not have the signs and signifiers of what most people think when they think I'm going to New Orleans, but this doesn't make the world I'm in any any less of a world. Yeah. And so there was that sort of, the I exist thing right. happening, but that was so, it was almost like a beginning idea right the work had to become much more than that but maybe that was a kind of initial impulse
0: sure and i mean you know it makes me your book really made me think about the the way in which um it's like you know how they always say the powerful write history or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. well the powerful also draw the maps yes and that i do. Ha- i hadn't thought of that they do you know they get to draw the maps and and they sort of have a say in what gets formally recognized as as a place
2: a map is is about power and for me to say move over i'm the cartographer now is is it feels revolutionary yeah to me and and it's also uh interesting to me because there's so many levels to that right because maps are also political tools and maps are also things that allow uh, discrimination to persist and and so i wanted to play with the idea of what's great about a map and also what's not so great about maps um and and i'm saying that i can move the frame too right and and in a way my moving the frame exposes what's also uh, weak about a map because it's all framing, and I can frame things out too um, and and make things invisible too right mm. um, and so then the entire book becomes essentially a play on or metaphor about mapping and the limitations and also the expanses of it
0: and you know the other thing or another thing that i uh, found interesting is the relationship that you And your family, many of your family members, if not all, uh, had to the French quarter, Mm -hmm. which is the, I think in the popular conception is New Orleans, (laughs) but New Orleans is 50 times bigger than the French quarter. There's all this other New Orleans out there, but most people who go to, go to town, they go to the quarter. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think kind of tied to that is, you know, especially as I, as I got older, um, I'm sort of a, I can be sort of an outlier in my family Mm -hmm. because I'm, you know, I was from Milwaukee. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up there. Most of my relatives did. Uh, I went to Boulder and was like a hippie. So mm-hmm. I had like long hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm left in my political leanings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go to New Orleans and be like, oh yeah, this place is like, this is the spot. This is like the Austin mm-hmm. of Texas. or sure. the, You know, but it's also badly broken.
2: Mm. Yeah. And I, I think the story of New Orleans uh, as happens with many humans, comes to stand in for what the actual place is. Because I my experience of New Orleans, and I love New Orleans, which is the whole reason I wrote a book about it, um, but my experience is that it's actually quite calcified as a place, and that politically speaking, it's really, for me, often – super conservative yeah. and and not actually very progressive.
0: Well, but also like um I feel I mean I think all politics especially mm-hmm. nowadays the uh, are a mess. It's mm-hmm. just a just like a central fact of politics. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I feel like Louisiana politics is sort of extra. Oh, yeah. I mean, man oh, is Oh it, god. It's, yeah.
2: s- it's it's also super the stuff going on there now, even in terms of what's happening environmentally, right? I mean, Louisiana has some of the laxest Uh, laws. And that's the thing that's allowing a lot of petrochemical companies to keep coming in and building in people's backyards. Actually, there are a lot of fights happening there, uh, having to do with just the way that uh, the, you know, what's happening with climate change and the environment and how the earth is being actively destroyed. And lots of people are going to Louisiana because they, it's a more permissive place. When it comes to all the terrible things that can happen.
0: But to, to South Louisiana is going to be underwater. Sure. The town where my dad grew up in a hundred years is probably going to be wiped out. Mm-hmm. Unless, I mean, I don't know how you mitigate against that with like, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, but it doesn't seem like it's doable. Like it's going to eventually get to the point where the water just rises.
2: Yeah. And, they, and this is going to be a story for all of us. Right. I mean, I was looking yesterday at the flooding in Houston. Right. I, I think this is going to and that's why for me in the book, I call it the water. Right. Because I, I resist the idea that the, it was a Katrina event, you know, and, and really want to think so much about the official negligence that everywhere in the country causes these things. But then also what's happening with climate change and that places we don't anticipate are going to be having weather events and fires and all sorts of natural events that are going to change uh, how we think of movement and displacement and even migration within the country itself.
0: It's going to be a big mess. It is. Yeah. And by the way, p- for people who don't have familiarity with New Orleans, it's kind of one of those places where you're like, people probably shouldn't I mean, I say this sort of tongue in cheek. They probably shouldn't be here. It's a cypress swamp. It's like a, not, not an easy yeah. place to like yeah. build infrastructure. Yeah. And like, like you say, like you describe the ground. Like you know, mm-hmm. you step on it and it's like squishy. Yeah. And if it rains hard, there's pools of water for days and days. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so and it's also you know either right at or below sea level, and mm-hmm. that's part. Sure. Of the, it was part of the problem in Katrina. I mean, the bigger problem was that there was a. But the levees got breached and there was right. like almost a uh, criminal inaction on the part of governmental sure. players who failed to step up and protect.
2: And also the infrastructure isn't there. I mean, I think the Dutch people, right, have found a way to sort of live with water. So all of the canals and the way that they sort of interact with the the water that exists there. Mm. Uh, a lot of people from New Orleans after the storm in 2005 were going over to the Netherlands and mm. trying to, to talk about the sort of incredibly advanced way that they've come to sort of coexist with the water that will naturally come. Uh, but nothing has ever changed for New Orleans. So I think part of that also Right. It's easier to say we shouldn't build here just, you know, because frankly, people shouldn't be living in San Francisco. if That's the the argument. Right. 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 Um, But but also what gets done um, to actually create systems that work over time and then who and then I think after the storm, there were big conversations about when does this sort of question of who gets to rebuild or what areas are worth rebuilding, when does it sort of surface? Yeah. And well, and about whom?
0: The, like, um, there, I think there was a part of me that hoped in the aftermath of Katrina, mm-hmm. like for all of the displacement and all of the destruction and all of the trauma that it caused, that there would be an opportunity to press reset and to rebuild, but to rebuild in a wiser way and to make improvements. Mm-hmm. But then I think you, you either said it, I, I sometimes mix mm-hmm. this up because I'm reading interviews and reviews sure. and the book itself, but you're talking about how the child poverty rate in New Orleans pre-Katrina is now more or less the same as it was. The same. And it's just like, damn it. Like, are, yeah. are we ever going to get our shit together as people <laughs> and make the kinds of structural <laughs> Do changes? Do you really
2: want to know the answer to that question? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I, like the optimist
0: yeah. in me wants to believe it, but um, it can be so disheartening. Yes. When you see when you look at just a number like that and you go, Man, come on.
2: And I and I think that that um, number actually bucks the common sort of perception or story that gets told, right? That, oh, something happened in two thousand five and look at us now. Look how revived we are and look at all the people coming back. And, and the quarter's cleaner yeah, than it used and to be. There are more restaurants than ever before. Uh-huh. And, but but then if you just sort of change, you know, where you're looking and think about education, you know, in schools and, you know, native New Orleanians and how they're faring and, you know, the economy, you start to get a very, very different story of what the place is like. And that's why I love that, that, that example of the child poverty rate, because what it tells us is that this was dysfunctional before Katrina And remains dysfunctional, you know? And so what does that say, right, about what's actually changing about the place?
0: Or like, what does it say about our ability to learn? Mm -hmm. Doesn't say good things. Well, that's an
2: American problem, too, Right, right? Right. I mean, we sort of nurture, I think, a collective amnesia. About history, about what actually happened, about our roots and our soft ground. Mm. We don't want to deal with it. What's baked into the soil as a country? Yeah. And and I think that leads us to the to be these people who just are on to the next thing.
0: I think like like I think about this all the time. It's like what has to happen for us to actually learn, heal, move forward, be better. Mm-hmm. like what functionally has to happen. And it's not just one thing, mm-hmm. sure. but I, I am increasingly convinced that if we don't have a reparations process mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. um, I don't see how psychologically or emotionally mm-hmm. or functionally mm-hmm. we can ever truly, um, move forward, uh, in a way that acknowledges mm-hmm. what's baked into the soil sure, as you say otherwise sure. we're just nurturing those sort of like phony histories or airbrushing mm-hmm. things we don't necessarily right. want to acknowledge there has to be a formal acknowledgement a formal acknowledgement like in the absence of that in the absence of that it's all lip
1: service
2: because it also the formal acknowledgement leads us to ask certain questions and we can't underestimate how crucial the questions are for taking us someplace. I mean, Baldwin says the questions are more important than the answers.
0: Your book asks a lot of questions. Yeah,
2: my book is perpetually, I mean, the last page asks questions that just don't get answered. And so I don't feel that we all have to be going around with answers. I think answers are sometimes misleading and and egomaniac. Egomaniacs are always the people with the answers, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I'm more interested in having questions. And I think that acknowledgement. Will lead us down a road where we get to say, what happened here? What does this mean? What's the value of this? How were people's lives irreparably damaged and changed?
0: Well and also too. You know, people generationally might look at you and say, Well, you were born in nineteen seventy nine. Mm-hmm. You know, you've lived in a totally different world mm-hmm. than somebody born in 1879. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I think your book, this is part of what makes mm-hmm. your book so powerful is that you're like, no, mm-hmm. like my story didn't begin in 1979. That's right. That's right. And, and none of our stories began no. in the year of our birth. Like there is a continuum that we are sure. a part of, whether like for good or ill, mm. you know, if you're living in privilege because your ancestor, you know, struck oil in Texas in 1911.
1: You Absolutely. Know, that's its own kind of uh... That's
2: the message of the work for me was I'm using myself as an example, but if we all did the same thing, if we said what was the world before me and how did that compose the person I am now, I think the story would broaden, deepen and completely change. Yeah. That we wouldn't be going around with the pompous assertion that we sort of fell from the sky. And are the people we are now by happenstance?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: you know, then we start to get to what are the, what's the value system? What are, what did we inherit in terms of identity and politics and the idea of heritage, right? And 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 all of the stuff that our ancestors did. That that have trickled down. I don't even want to
0: know what my ancestors did. <laughs> You're I, not
2: going to be on that find your Root show. I,
0: I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I've talked about this before, but it's like it's sort of haunting mm-hmm. in a certain way. It's like, because I grew up with relatives, and I still have relatives who are, you know, on the Trump train, and mm-hmm. you know, you have family members sometimes mm-hmm. that you have strong disagreements with, sure. or who might not have. Um, Let's say uh, an approach toward race that I would approve mm-hmm. of, um, but it's complicated because they're your family.
2: Right, and they are your family. What do you do with it? Can yeah. you talk to them though about it?
0: I don't see them enough. To it's usually yeah. like a nowadays it's like a wedding or a funeral, mm-hmm. so it's hard to be like on the dance floor at the
2: wedding. <laughs> hey, <laughs> like, what's your, what's <laughs> wrong with your politics? How do you feel about reparations? <laughs> 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 but but going back to but wouldn't you want to know what your ancestors? In fact,
0: I, I would, I think, you know, if you speak of it on a continuum, I like to think that there is a way in which I can, through my, the way I conduct myself in my own life, maybe right wrongs, mm-hmm. you know, that were um, done by them, however mm-hmm. many hundreds of years ago. Look, it's also possible that I have ancestors who did do the right thing. Sure. I truly don't know. Which is
2: why it would be good to know.
0: Yeah. I got to get in those archives. Yes. Find out what the hell happened. I
2: encourage you to do that.
0: I should. And you know what I've been thinking too, and I have something, there's so much I could talk to you about, but, uh all the interviews you did with your family mm-hmm. that is gold mm-hmm. i want to do that with my cuz i have a my mm-hmm. mom comes from a family of 9 oh wow my dad uh, was four you know mm-hmm. um, but still like a lot of family my grandparents have passed away mm-hmm. but it's such a cool record that you've accumulated not only what's in between the covers of your book but i'm imagining you saved this audio
2: i i do have so much audio and at a certain point i stopped transcribing it I wanted to trans... I have hundreds of hours of audio. Did you
0: transcribe this yourself? I
2: did uh, for the large majority of it. Yeah. For a a little bit, maybe 5% of it, I had an intern helping me. But the reason I transcribed so much of it was because I wanted to sort of inhabit the sounds of my siblings so that when I was writing, they sounded different in the actual course of the narrative, right? And so it was hard to do, but interesting to do. But I think maybe there's 50% of everything I recorded that just I've never transcribed or listened to.
0: You saved that Because it
2: became, I still have it, but there was just too much. I couldn't, and I was thinking a lot about what I missed because I didn't finish transcribing, but there was just so much. I felt like I already had the story.
0: Well, I was going to say at a certain point, I think in research or in Mm pre-production for a book or whatever- I think you get to a point where things start to cross over and I think you just intuit like, okay, I'm ready mm-hmm. to write now. Like, sure, I got what I need. Sure, But I think, you know, you talk about nieces, nephews, mm-hmm. future nieces, like down the line, that audio will be gold.
2: I, I think it's gold now. And I actually should collect it and have it in many different places. Like get or, a
1: Dropbox. Or, yeah. You know. Something
2: that just allows it to, I want to feel that it's safer than it is. And I have some video too. Yeah.
0: I mean, that stuff. And
2: a lot of the people are dead who I interviewed. My, my mother is one of three, and both of her siblings have died from the time I started working on the book formally in 2011 and now. So to go back and listen to my Uncle Joe or my Auntie Elaine and hear their voices is, is a profound thing.
0: Yeah. I got to do that. That's like, I actually was just thinking, maybe as I was reading, I was mm-hmm. like, I should take a trip, mm-hmm. bring my microphone and just drive around louisiana i have family all over you really should and just go sit with them
2: please do that
0: get them on tape
2: i i want to i would like for you to do that okay
0: you should do that and find out because like people all hold it's so weird like not only like you might have lived through similar Mm -hmm. history in that house with Mm -hmm. a sibling at the Mm -hmm. same time Mm -hmm. but you have a total you're each holding a totally different history exactly like your perspective like i think you were talking about you know, your sister who got married in the backyard of the yeah, house. Yeah. You know, that's her yellow house.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which is an amazing house, yeah. you know, for her. She's and, like, what? The house I grew up in was a middle-class, beautiful house. Right. With encyclopedias. What are you talking about? Right. She has, a, and she said to me, I remember sitting down with her and saying, I want to interview you about the yellow house. She said, what yellow house? The house I knew was green. And and that was the moment my whole world burst open and I realized Oh, I'm not telling one story. I'm telling many different stories in one book. Yeah. Because for these people, this was not their reality. You know, my siblings had really different experiences.
0: Well, and I love the decision to approach it like really reportorially. Mm -hmm. You interview them, you are very honest on the page about mm-hmm. like your brother being like, I don't think you should be doing this. right? Because <laughs> you know, like, I mean, man, you start to get family members on the record and you're like, Oh, by the way, I'm writing about us. And yes. you, um, you want to honor that. But there's like a part of the book where your sister's talking about your father, um, getting a little rough with her yeah. and telling yeah. stories that don't necessarily portray a person in their finest moment. That's right. But we're we're all people.
2: And I and I think not enough books, you know, I think often when it comes to autobiography, there's a kind of hagiography hey, that happens because right. the hard thing to do is to say my mother made a series of choices that made her who she is, and some of those choices we might look skeptically at and others we might think were cool. But but it's that nuance that makes her the kind of human I'm interested in reading about.
0: And she's—I mean, your mother is sort of the, in my view, like the hero of the book. Mm -hmm. We haven't even named her yet. She's got a great name, Ivory May. (laughs) Ivory May. And so, um, there are—I think there are people just made of strong timber, and Mm -hmm. of whom like life asks a lot. Sure. But I mean, to lose two husbands, Mm -hmm. to lose your house, yes, to raise twelve, you know, or it was 12 yeah, kids blended 12, family yeah
2: alternately yeah
0: like, and then to go back to school mm-hmm. um you know after the loss of your father
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh just tough yeah like my, tough circumstances tough, but also like a tough woman
2: tough tough woman and a really kind human which impresses me to no end um and i say that because i think a lot of people who go through such things there's something changes inside them, and they're just harder. And my mother is so kind. Mm. She really is a kind person. And we learned, I think, kindness from her. And kindness is actually a feat, especially, I think, in this world where there are so many unkind people. Right. And people become stars through their unkindness. Right. I mean, I am so struck by this, especially on Twitter. You know, a little bit of meanness gets you a very long way. Yeah. And to be a kind person feels major to me, especially in these days.
0: I think when you talk about trauma, uh, any kind of uh, difficult situation that you go through in life, like deep hurt. Or loss, mm-hmm. you go one of two ways. It either hardens you or softens you, mm. you know. And some people, like they close ranks, they kind of close in, mm-hmm. and they put on their shell. And then other people, it sort of, you know, it opens them up. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you know, it's like that's what your For mom my mother,
2: did. yeah. And she's a real thinker, you know. My mom. It's funny. I think part of why I'm okay with not reading reviews is because my mother. By the way, you should read them. They're really good. Oh my god! But you know what? <laughs> but here's the thing, though. If I read them. And even if they're good, then I have to believe all reviews. I have to believe what's the good ones and the bad ones. That's right. But my mother is a great critic. And she you know, she took forty eight hours and read the book and gave me a lot of feedback. And and I felt like I, I didn't need any other critic. I didn't need to read or know what anyone else thought. What was she what that. was her
0: what's the gist?
2: Well, she thought that I told the truth. There was some things she wished that I hadn't told. And she didn't necessarily like the organization of the book. She thought that certain things should have been brought more to the fore. <laughs> <laughs> that I buried the lead in right. certain instances. What did she so think? she didn't like the way I worked with time so much. Oh really? Okay. Mm-hmm. And
0: how do you like what was your response to that?
2: I was like, Well, that's good to know, but this is my book and you can write your own. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. So um, in the interest of time, mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to do something a little unconventional, but okay. because your book contains so much, I thought it might be sort of fun to do what's like a lightning round
1: mm. where I'm just going to
0: give you prompts because you were asked, I was reading something you did. I think it was for LitHub,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where they're like, what's your book about? Yeah. Which of course is like the the most annoying question ever. <laughs> you know people and i think
2: i gave like a million different words you did yeah
0: (laughs) but uh, not inaccurate you know and i think like actually it was like the right response because it is about so much Mm -hmm. Um, but for listeners who are out there who haven't read yet i thought it might be interesting if i just like i'm gonna tell you what you said okay i'll give you one at a time i love that and then you can sort of like riff a little bit Ooh,
2: i love this can we do this this is fun
0: okay home Some of these things we've touched on before.
2: Okay, home. I'm just supposed to say what I think when you say home? Yeah,
0: your book, is. I mean, it's about a home, but it's about like, what is the meaning of
2: home? What is the meaning of home? That is the ongoing existential question, which I have not figured out. But I think I think of tethering. What are we tethered to? What do we keep returning to? What do we need to leave? What obsesses us the most? What agitates us?
0: What do you think? Like You're obviously, New Orleans is home Mm -hmm. for you, or is it New York?
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you mean literally.
0: Well, I'm just asking as an extension. I think, I
2: think New Orleans is a home place for me. But Harlem, I feel very much at home. That's so interesting. It's kind of... I mean... Harlem is full of Southerners. And it it has that quality of people saying hello and seeing you and sitting on their stoops and people being a little eccentric. Um, and that somehow creates a feeling of home for me, which I'm really interested in.
0: And like, yeah, what about like, what do they say? Home is where the heart is. I mean, I know it's like, oh, God. It's like the most like treacly, <laughs> but <laughs>
2: I'm allergic to that saying, <laughs> I know,
0: but I, all that I mean, to, all that I mean to say is like, you, you have your spouse, partner, family, yeah, yeah. like kind of wherever we are feels like home to me that's like, interesting we're on vacation we're yeah. you know but as long as they're there like i'm home i don't know oh, interesting and I, I don't feel like i could be inaccurate uh in my feel like in assessing my own feelings on uh-huh. this but like i've never felt like a strong sense of home at los is home i always feel like i'm passing through really yeah i'm just like so when
2: you're away and you come back what feeling do you have
0: i'm glad to be home like i'm glad to be back yeah. i always say oh yeah. it's good to be back yeah. like i'm not like ugh, right but i just don't have that and i think maybe because i moved a lot as a kid mm. um or you know moved three times and had to like change realities mm-hmm. and then went away to college and never went back and then my parents moved from the house that i spent high school in Mm. so i never like went back
2: Mm. you know so i have
0: all this stuff in my rearview mirror that like i just rarely revisit
2: that's so intriguing to me and
0: so i think in the absence of like a full childhood in a Mm -hmm. place you lack those like roots Mm. or that sense you know what i'm saying
2: that's interesting
0: yeah i don't know maybe at some point i keep thinking like i think i'm gonna like i'm gonna move somewhere at some point and it's going to be the place.
2: And you feel like, but maybe you won't. Maybe as a form of self-protection, you don't allow that to happen. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to analyze you here no, on your, po- on your <laughs> very own podcast.
0: I'm lying down right now, actually. <laughs> uh, but, I, uh, I, but I also feel like a, sen- a sense of like rootedness and connection to New Orleans just mm. because of like, you know, so much. Of, like, that's where my family's from. Yeah. That's where like, the deepest roots are. And so, but I never lived there in a permanent way. That's interesting.
2: Way. Yeah. I go back to New Orleans once a month. Do you really? Yeah. I go every month. I actually have a tiny little house. Oh, cool. In the Maroney neighborhood. Yeah. It was a very hard house to get. It, it was just hard. It's hard to get a house there, frankly. Why? Um,
0: like In that neighborhood or in New Orleans? Just
2: in New Orleans, I feel. It's, it, houses now are very expensive compared to what they used to be and they just i feel like all the loans are bad even if you have like good credit and a down payment it just i just remember it being an excruciating process you know and getting all these offers for like terrible loan deals and for a mortgage and i thought wow if you actually live here it must be impossible but i go to this little house once a month and, you know, I visit with my mom, still lives in New Orleans, and I have about four or five siblings there. I'm so just compelled to return. That motion, the return and departure motion, is huge for me. Yeah. I'm it, always like, I can't not do it.
0: And it's good to just, like, touch it. Like go I, I just go and
2: sort of touch it. And I think, oh, this is a slower way of being in the world. Yeah. You know, for the first day, I'm walking like a New Yorker and I'm <laughs> sort of like impatient like a New Yorker. Right. But then I remember, oh, oh, I'm back. Yeah. Maybe not home, but I'm back.
0: And you can slow down. You
2: know, and I, I the air is familiar to me, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. No place like that feels that way for me, except for Cambodia. When I went to Cambodia, I felt like I was in New Orleans, weirdly. Really? The, something about the people the warmth the there's a kind of a kind of sensuality of the place that i understood
0: yeah yeah i mean i've tried to think like i think just like that that physical like that the tactile the air mm-hmm. the smells the mm-hmm. water the food mm-hmm. like all of that together i don't get that anywhere else either that i can think of it's a strong vibe.
2: Yeah, it's not an LA thing, that's for certain. <laughs> no, <laughs>
0: though I will say we do have some, we have jasmine. When the jasmine is blooming in the desert, oh, yes. it's beautiful. Yes. Um, but it's not, you know, mm. it's, uh, and I also think, too, Los Angeles is such a big, sprawling place. That's right. Yeah. Like New Orleans, you can kind of feel this, you can sort of wrap your arms around
2: yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a village, it's tiny. Yeah. When I remind people that New Orleans has like less than 400,000 people in it, you know it's a it's a good way to put the city in context, yeah. even when you think of the crime or the what doesn't get done, you realize, hmm, this isn't a big place yeah. to manage well, right right if, if you think about New York with so many millions of people
0: stacked on top of one another, right, you know it's amazing anything happens really, you yeah, get, you get it is it is that level
2: Uh
0: and I was like now you're reminding me, I was going to ask you when we were talking about like mm-hmm. the political context and post-Katrina and that opportunity that you sort of hoped for. They're like, okay, we're going to be able to rebuild, but we're going mm-hmm. to be able to make some wiser decisions. Um, Do you ever read, like, the uh, – I think it's Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism stuff? Yeah. Like, that sort of
2: – Yeah.
0: Like, thinking and that sort of uh, process haunts me a little bit.
2: Right. The idea that when a natural disaster happens, this is actually when people swoop in right. to – take advantage of and that happened really quickly in new orleans because you could buy all these houses for nothing i
0: mean that's the thing it it works it's a little counterintuitive i think uh, a huge natural disaster comes in and everything's under five feet of water or whatever Mm -hmm. it is you'd think well god all the people with money like they're not going to go anywhere near it the place is a wreck right but there are certain people who are opportunistic and um might not have the best intentions who go oh okay so everything's cheap now. People mm-hmm. are desperate now. Mm-hmm. We're going to go in and we're going to take over. Yeah,
2: And and understanding the, the capitalist idea that it will all change too, right? That the water will recede, you know, and there will be once again a market.
0: And we're going to own it. Yeah. And we're going to set the rules mm-hmm. and we're going to draw the map.
2: Sure. Yeah.
0: So uh, moving down my list. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of. Um you know actually I'm going to skip over mapping just cuz we talked yeah, about that Yeah we mapping. talked about that Um geographies sort of tied to mm-hmm. mapping do you feel like we can skip this one or is there something you Geography. would like to
2: Geography Ooh so I want to but there was something about cut-offness that I loved about the book this idea that you know I grew up on like the short end of a long street that was sort of bifurcated by a major highway. And then interestingly enough, the way that New Orleans East, which is the, technically the Ninth Ward. So most people heard of the Lower Ninth Ward. So that's part of the Ninth Ward. But New Orleans East is actually bifurcated and, and sort of uh, exiled from the rest of New Orleans by the Industrial Canal, which is this navigation channel. So I that is so intriguing to me, the sort of natural geography of the place, that what it takes to arrive there is a little dramatic. You've got to go over this high-rise bridge, this bridge we call the high-rise because it's so steep. And that bridge is the thing that leads you over the waterway.
0: Over the industrial canal. Over
2: the industrial canal. And, and it's
0: steep and high because the boat's got to come in. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And so I love... That is so much a part of the story for me, that mm. we were cut off from the other end of the street. How did this come to be? What kind of ridiculous city planning made this possible? How, do, how did this area get zoned as residential? And then also the geography of where we were in relation to the rest of the city. You know. Yeah. So then, when you're going around, you're growing up. You're like, oh yeah, I'm from New Orleans, but you're realizing that no one is thinking New Orleans East when you say that. But you're not going around saying I'm from New Orleans East. You're saying I'm from New Orleans. You know. Yeah. Because you're you are part of the city, but you're also not of it in a way.
0: How how has the book? Have you done any readings in New Orleans?
2: I did. yeah. Yeah. I started. I began. I launched my whole tour in New Orleans. Where? So actually in the Garden District, which was so interesting, and that was like the place that had enough space because there were quite a lot of people there, okay. including many of my family members. Good for you. Um, but then the next day, uh, importantly, I went to a po'boy shop um, and there I met not obviously every person is real. But these were some real New Orleanians uh-huh. in the best way. The people I love to be around and talk to. And, and they, everybody who bought a po' boy um, at this place called Melba's got a free copy of The Yellow House. So I was standing there. Uh, and then when they bought a po' boy, they came over to me and I inscribed a book for all the people. Hmm. And these were people who, you know, there's a laundromat next to the po boy shop. So people would be over there washing clothes and come over. And it was the most profound thing that I've done absolutely on book tour. Get because, a po
0: boy and a book. And a book. Come and on. I was like beaming the whole
2: freaking time. <laughs> and bet. and I was just like, this is who I wrote my book for. Sure. I wrote my book for You know, this guy came up, said his name was Rugga or something. Uh He was like, R-U-G-A, Rugga, you know, (laughs) and I inscribed his book and I just felt so proud. I was like, Rugga's going home with my freaking book. Yeah. And, um... I was hugging people and it just, and I was also drinking a daiquiri while I was, <laughs> so, cause they're known for these very delicious banana daiquiris. Yeah.
0: Well, no, I mean, and like the whole, the whole thing, like first of all, drinking, yeah, like my cousin lives there, has a kid. I'm like you go to Little League mm-hmm. on a Saturday morning. There's an open bar.
2: That's crazy. I mean,
0: New Orleans doesn't mess around. Drive through,
2: drive through daiquiri. which really needs to stop because these people can't drive in the first place, and then they're driving drunk.
0: Oh man, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, they know how to ha- They know how to do it there, but um.
2: So I want to pitch that for my next book. For everyone listening, I would like to do it only in places where real people go, like banks, po' boy shops, laundromats. I think it's a great like, idea. Like, literally, just go everywhere and be in these very real places.
0: I feel like your book is going to... F- I mean, I'm just making a prediction, mm-hmm. so take it for what it's worth, but I feel like it's going to find its place among uh, essential New Orleans books. I hope so. I think it will. I think it's gonna, because I think... I mean, it's just excellent. um, Like in and of itself, it's just excellently done, but it also tells an essential story that Mm -hmm. needed to be told. Um, So that's awesome. Thank you. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So displacement.
2: Mm. That's a big one. And And the thing that I feel so deeply, and I think this is key also to why I wrote the book the way I wrote it, is that I realize when being out of context feels like displacement to me too. And displacement just being like the feeling of being like kind of mislocated or dislocated. Right. Like
0: that's how I feel. Yeah. On that, planet earth. Like not, that's
2: interesting. Yeah. yeah. It, I feel like I'm pa- like an some alien. People just feel that way. Yeah. That you're kind of off a central axis. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, so displacement is so and i think so much of people who have yet to return to many homes that are destroyed um every time anything happens so a raging fire in paradise california or flooding I think so much of who's off their axis now. Who's off their axis?
0: And there's a huge difference between me saying like I just feel this weird sense of like where the hell am I? Sure. Versus somebody being forcibly displaced by an like an, an event of yeah, nature.
2: that's true. There there is a difference, but there this is a, a old feeling though, right? I mean, that's why I love so much W.G. Zabel's book, The Immigrants, uh-huh. because it sort of gets at this. Andre Asiman the writer, is. In his book, uh, he has a collection called False Papers, but then many other books. He talks incessantly about being in one place and yearning for another one. Uh, another writer who does this is Nicole Krauss, mm. you know, Great House, right? I think it's called Great House. But it's like this idea that you're in one place, but you, you're you elsewhere, Right. Or you want to be elsewhere. Right. And that's sort of, for me, also the idea of displacement, you know, Um, a kind of perpetual search for the place you feel okay in, you know?
0: Yeah. You think you found it? No. No. I I think
2: it's just the, the subject that I'll be circling for, you know, the rest of my writing life.
0: And, you know, your family was displaced. Yes, In mass by yes. this, by this hurricane, the house was destroyed and then eventually leveled. One thing I always tell people, cause I did not see the aftermath of Katrina with my own mm-hmm. eyes until well after the storm, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to really think about what the date was, but it was months, if not like a year after. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I try to impress upon people is that whatever you saw on TV,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like paled in comparison Absolutely. to seeing it on the ground. Because you can't get a sense of scale
1: mm-hmm. unless exactly. you're looking
0: at it, and it was like my uncle Elmore was mm-hmm. driving me around New Orleans, and it was like we drove for like a half an hour in mm-hmm. one direction on one road, mm-hmm. and it was all gone. Yeah, it's like a bomb went
2: off. That that is the that that part is is the thing that most people do not imagine going street by street by street and noticing all the absence it's just haunting
0: and like a you know and the thing too is that like the cleanup effort mm-hmm. it was granted it was a huge mm-hmm. undertaking mm-hmm. um but in a city uh whose like a you know political infrastructure might be a little dysfunctional mm-hmm. or a lot dysfunctional mm-hmm. slows things down so you know a year later a lot of these some of these houses hadn't even been touched Right. You know, there hadn't been any effort made to clean up yet.
2: And 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 so much of that is also individual effort, right? So if you're being supported or you have the resources to come back, you know, that helps things. A lot of people, I think, barely had the resources to evacuate. Right. Um, and so it becomes really hard to come back to do cleanup, to do anything, to even just come back. I mean, I think there's a huge number of New Orleanians to this day. Who are still displaced, who have yet to return?
1: Yeah, no, that's there's...
2: that's a heartbreaking thing because uh, New Orleans is one of those places that has an inordinate, inordinately high number of people who never left New Orleans. I think before the storm, it was like eighty-seven percent of New Orleanians had never lived any place else right. or been any place else. Like yeah. their, their whole for generations, these people were New Orleanians. You yeah.
0: Know? Yeah. I mean, you would read, I would read every once in a while, there'd be a piece like, especially in the years immediately after Katrina about the diaspora mm-hmm. and like stories of like them rebuilding their lives elsewhere and I remember reading this story, and it was like these people had been musicians, right? Had lived in the Lower Ninth Ward, and they're like, "Now we're in Salt Lake City, yeah." And I'm just like, "What?"
2: <laughs> you know, like, and some people love that because I have family now who they came to California, for instance, after the storm, and some of them have stayed, yeah, because they have better jobs here. They're like, "Oh, the, there are so many different opportunities. It's not here. so human. <laughs> we don't have to work three jobs right. and still, you know, be suffering."
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah. So, there can be uh, happy stories, too. But I guess, like, the romantic in me is like, oh, like, you belong back in your life. <laughs> Everyone New is
2: yearning to be back, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Or just like, <laughs> you know, j- just like the, the city lost something very vital. Sure, And you know, I think that's true. Like, that cultural resource of just, like, the native people mm-hmm. who'd been there their whole lives, mm-hmm. who built the place, or who contributed so much to, mm-hmm. like, the art. The, in the cultural community, you know what yeah. I'm saying? To yeah. Like all of a sudden have that sort of blown up. Yeah. It's a big wound.
2: I think that's right.
0: You know, uh, do you feel like when you go back that the essential soul of the place is still intact yeah. as you knew it?
2: Yeah. Because I think so much of what is new Orleans for me is an ancient feeling actually. Mm. Um, and it, it, I, I'm very aware of everything in the way that it's changed. Uh, but the essence still exists for me because the essence feels older than any one moment or movement even, you know?
0: It's definitely a place that feels like just imbued with history. I
2: think it's a very spiritual place. Uh-huh. And, and part of what contributes to that is the way it's organized by ritual, ritual is very important in new orleans the hmm. thing you do on a friday the thing you do you know when you first learn someone dies the thing you do three days after they've died you know uh it's a very ritualized what do you do? tradition well I mean, it depends on who you are in your family but like friday for in my family because we were sort of catholic and and many people are is you know that's like fish on Fridays and you know they're just you know you make your red beans on Monday and you know there's it's just a place consumed by ritual a way you do things you 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 know if you want to know what's playing it's the live wire on WWOZ and they're just very predictable moments of time and I think it's a very ritualized place and that contributes to the feeling you know of it
0: Well, and it's also, you know, it's also, I mean, the quarter in particular, the old arch they have done a great job of preserving old architecture or at least a a better job than most places. Certainly Los Angeles, which feels like it's like it's evergreen or something, you know, you don't get that sense of history. And then another thing about Louisiana, when you talk about a place feeling spiritual or sort of like, like haunted or having like a ghostly presence about it is the fact that you have all these grave sites that are above ground. Sure. Like that physical fact of being in Louisiana just always made an impression on me. Yeah. You go past the cemetery, most places and it's just the headstones and it's underground, yeah. but you have the, because of the, the, uh, the groundwater and the sure. land, you have all the tombs above ground and, you know,
2: yeah, especially close to the original city. I mean, you know, the scary part about what happened after Katrina was for instance the graveyard where my childhood friend is buried, Alvin. you know, yeah Elvin, um, is is of course below ground. It's in New Orleans East. And a lot of you know there were stories about people coffins coming up and sort of floating around, and that's also such an economic thing, right? So who can actually afford to be above ground is is a real thing, and even the French Quarter, right? So much it's so much an, of an economic driver for the city. I think it's like the health industry, the medical industry, and tourism are two of the key kind of economic assets that New Orleans has. It's. It didn't do what Houston or Dallas did. It didn't sort of get bigger and more cosmopolitan in that way. And so tourism, th- they have to maintain what I learned living that year in the French Quarter. It's literally a business decision. You know, the color you paint your house is is every single thing is controlled. Right. You know, w- the streets and what they smell like.
0: You got to give people Who the experience. Who gets to live
2: there, right? Because it costs a lot to to rent there most people rent a lot of people own and so it is so tightly controlled it's one square mile or something Uh Um, but it's so rigidly controlled because everyone is going with that idea in mind that you just said which is like oh the architecture is great and so they go to the ends of the earth to protect the facades now inside you could have a modern masterpiece (laughs) <laughs> but outside, it has to look a certain way.
0: In my head, I'm going, well, whatever it takes. I think it's the right call. <laughs> you know, if it's yeah, a business... I mean,
2: look, I'm not saying you, it should look. I'm just saying I, I'm pointing out how much the city relies on the, th- that idea. Yeah. You know, th- that has to be so, because so much of the way the city makes money is through that facade.
0: Well, and it's like, yeah, I mean, I feel like Louisiana... It's it's oil, mm-hmm. um, sugarcane, cane. Uh, you know your uh, family. It was like NASA mm-hmm. at least for sure. a time. I didn't yep. know that NASA had a plant. Yeah, there, most
2: people don't know that
0: they were making rocket boosters. Yeah,
2: and that makes the East actually historically significant, e- even though we'd never hear about it. But but the French War, interestingly enough, right, mm. is um, is technically a spanish quarter because the french quarter in its sort of original um existence actually a lot of it was destroyed to fire Mm. and it actually as it exists now with the balconies and the plants ferns hanging off of them is is a, a spanish built and conceived place interesting but french quarter is a much more intriguing name than Spanish Quarter. <laughs>
1: I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So,
2: you know, that's the thing I'm trying to say is that what New Orleans is great at is marketing and selling itself. And that's why we hear about some places and not others. Because New Orleans East just isn't very marketable. Well, as yeah, a place. For the, especially
0: for the tourist dollar. Right. You know, you want people to come in and get their hand grenade
1: or whatever it is. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're not going to be walking
2: around the east with a hand grenade. And also, there used to be Jazzland, which was like a theme park based on jazz themes or something like that. And it's now sort of abandoned. You know, it's a scary, really horrifying place. Where where is it? It's in the east. It's like, you know, if you go a bit more eastern towards Slidell, you see this sort of monstrosity of you know rusted out rides
1: just like a big really creepy online
2: there's a whole fascination with it
0: oh interesting yeah because like there's like a yeah there's like a there are these like subcultural groups that are like obsessed with like abandoned shopping sure, malls exactly. and abandoned like theme parks. Yeah, I get that.
2: Yeah. It's creepy. So, so Jazzland was like the hope of bringing people to the East and then it just sort of died after Katrina and never reopened.
0: <laughs> now there's just like a sad animatronic yes. Louis Armstrong just like standing there with this trumpet.
2: <laughs> Precisely. <laughs>
0: um, okay. So I'm going to make uh, a decision. We just because we're, we're running over, out of time. Right? Yeah. I can't go through the whole list because okay. there's so much. So you
2: have to pick your favorite
0: well i'm gonna ask i want to ask you a question i want to ask you a couple questions about your like like career arc because
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, i think listeners are going to be at home uh asking themselves like well how, how did you do this like yeah. you went away to college right at north texas mm-hmm. i found it very uh touching and in some ways uh relatable but like you didn't even know other out-of-state schools <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's if that's not the New Orleans education system, right? No one was talking to me when I was in high school about college. It just wasn't even a thing for all the reasons I think we can imagine and know. But no one was telling me about college. I learned because I was dating a guy, if you can call it dating um and and he was like oh i'm going to the university of north texas to the music school and i was like oh that's a place okay. and then i sort of went there All i mean good. i think i never saw him ever again but but i sort of was away i didn't even know anything about out of state tuition
1: yeah
0: like you know i don't i mean my folks were like uh... I knew a little bit. I mean, I think I knew the names of certain schools, but like I was weirdly tuned out mm-hmm. when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, I, sometimes I'll be interviewing somebody or reading something and somebody's mm-hmm. like, I wanted to go to Yale from the time That's I was in eighth grade. And I'm like, dude, yeah. I was like running around that was or, not my life either. riding my bike i didn't even think about that <laughs> you know like, <laughs> just didn't have like the right uh, i don't know if i had my ducks in a row but mm-hmm. you go away to school mm-hmm. um you very hard worker good student mm-hmm. uh, not na- like a i was working at
2: the newspaper from like day one day one day one i so, was at the student newspaper and, and writing about the yellow house from- um that yeah i was taking notes then I was just writing about how, you know, the house was falling down and how, you know, it was coming apart, but not with any idea of a book. No idea. But
0: still, it just underscores how these things incubate. Like you have had this house on your mind since you were Mm -hmm. a kid. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. you live there, but I I mean, you've had it on your mind as something to write words on paper about for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And to get to the place where you had the perspective and understanding of it, you obviously had to go through all these different phases you had to witness its destruction yeah <laughs> you had to cope with that and then like get some distance from it but i just find that interesting this has been with you for the entirety time. of your adult life
2: yeah and i think what, what has actually been with me is is an obsession with place and so i because i'm fixated on several places many of which i think i'll write about mm. but that was like a key one for what, me like
0: burundi you can write about it. I can't it. tell you. See, oh, you cuz you're Kong? gonna you're
2: gonna collapse my fragile web. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so okay, so but you're yeah. you're demonstrating as a natural book nerd writer yeah, yeah. from an early age. Very, you go to, you go yeah. to North Texas, um, find your way, you're working in the paper. Mhm. Um, and so can you just talk like, you know, as it's, it's going to be like kind of an in a nutshell type presentation, but You go from college to where you are today? I go from University
2: of North Texas to Berkeley. So uh, Berkeley was a place I always thought of going to when I was at UNT because I loved all the protesting the students were known to do and were doing. And I wanted to – I don't know how I knew this, but I wanted to write not for newspapers because I had done several newspaper internships when I was in Texas – Um, And I realized I wanted to write longer form. So I went to the University of California, Berkeley, and I really went there following after the poet June Jordan, because at the time, June Jordan, who is someone I admire and love so much, um, was teaching a course called Poetry for the People. And she died. So I got into Berkeley, into the master's program in the journalism school. I was going to take June's course, and she died of breast cancer the summer before I I entered. Um, I still took her class. But at Berkeley, I my teachers were Clay Falker, you know, who is a legend really of the magazine world and writing and Michael Pollan and a woman named Cynthia Gorney, who's one of the best reporters I've ever met. And I learned a different level of investigative journalism and reporting there and, and became more formally a kind of reporter, in a sense.
0: You have strong reportorial skills. Yeah,
2: it's a thing I love to do.
0: What Give me, give me something. Can you give listeners like an idea of some of the things you learn from these people and in that uh, so, part of your life?
2: Clay Falker, his big thing was like point of view. And it sounds so simple, but to have a point of view is the thing that makes a writer. And to have a very strong one and not let go of it and sort of nurture it. Through a very long project was the thing i learned from him mm. so he was a stickler for like when he felt that you were trembling on the page and weren't coming from a strong place or point of view he would sort of yell out he had had like throat cancer or something so in the middle of the class he would what's go up like, with
0: berkeley master's degree or grad school <laughs> professors having cancer <laughs> i know right
2: he was like point of view you know and and he sort of took me under his wing and um, and I actually wrote, was working as an assistant for his wife, Gail Sheehy, who has written many books. Yeah. And she taught me how to put together a book. That's how I learned that for this book.
0: So like just like how to structure it?
2: Literally, no, physically how to put it together. How to co- collect interviews, how to read interviews for something you're going to write from them, how to literally organize your work. And, and I learned from her that you make many books in the organization of a book. In order to write one book.
0: And that, yeah, you peel away some of them. Yeah. And so the note cards and the gathering of the interviews and the transcribing. Mm -hmm. And then do you do do any kind of like formal outline or like, you know, vision board type thing?
2: I do huge pieces of butcher paper and I sort of map out, you know, sections or, and then once I know the structure, I throw things into those pieces of paper i say i don't know what this will be but i want to talk about this person here because i write more thematically than chronologically
0: hmm. so you go from berkeley did you study with joyce johnson did i read that uh
2: yeah so she was in new york so then i i i worked at o magazine for a time okay i was an intern there during, between my first and second year at berkeley And I was taking out the trash for various editors. And one of the things I would do in my spare time, because I was a little sort of crazy kid, was go up to Pat Towers, who was running the book department and say, what can I do for you? I want to be your slave. I will open every book that comes through. I just want to like log in the galleys. You know, I was begging her practically. And so I started doing that. And so later she remembered me and that's how I got a job. Sometime later at O Magazine, I was actually, had gone to Time Asia and was living in Hong Kong after I graduated with my master's from Berkeley. And I was what they call a stringer. So I was being dispatched to various places to collect string, which was essentially doing the reporting that some big white man normally would then write the story from the office. So I'd be like in Vietnam, I'd be like in Hanoi, gathering the string and then sending it to the home office or stuff like that. And so I was also still reporting there. But then I left Hong Kong, started working as an editorial assistant at O, and then over the years, I was there for about four years, I became an assistant editor or whatever the next rung was. But I was also writing during that time. Writing this book? I was No, I was just writing pieces. Oh um in the magazine about having parties literary parties and i wrote the katrina in 2005 i wrote the cover story about my family
0: you ever uh meet with oprah
2: you know i saw her many times because i worked in the books department and she loves books i think we all know and was sort of coming around and you know showing up and we'd talk about books and you know i'd interact with her in certain ways she's cool she Yeah, she's Oprah. I mean, you know, she's, she's Oprah, please. yeah, <laughs> That's all we need to say. Um, and then after that, I went to Burundi. I left O Magazine.
0: Yeah, well, didn't Samantha Power tell you? Samantha
2: Power. How do you
0: know Samantha Power? We were
2: at uh, a dinner at the New York Public Library, and okay. she had just, I think her book had come out, A Problem from Hell, some time ago. But I remember her, I think, being there with Katie Marton or someone like that. And anyway, there was a private dinner, and my uh, a friend of mine invited me. And I sat next to Samantha, who is beguiling. I mean, she's so. Was
0: she UN secretary? No, no. At the time, that. I think
2: she was just teaching at Harvard. Oh, okay. And and so she knew this guy, and she hooked me up and told me about Burundi. I'd never heard of Burundi before, and and because I am a person who is not um, you know afraid until I've made the leap, <laughs> I went to Burundi, and and that was life changing for me and i was working at a radio station and doing like development work raising money and writing grants and and also just going through obviously something that is now in the book having to do with you know sort of displacing myself you know and then after that i went through a whole nonprofit phase of my life where i was working in very big jobs i was the communications director of a dc nonprofit I was then the executive director of a global health nonprofit that was in Burundi and also New York. So that was, um, that was a big job because I was the executive director. I was setting up the, the first office in New York and doing development work and, you know, tons of fundraising and a lot of sort of mapping out what the organization would become.
0: You've lived lots of lives.
2: So many lives really but good, but good for my the... mother was always saying what what is going on? why are you why do you have the impulse to move so quickly and do so many things? Why do you i think it's just how i'm made i'm just innately curious too, and yeah. I love people
0: well and I think yeah, and I think uh, it's good for the work I think it's good for the work, not just for you, but for in general, for any writer to go do different stuff mm-hmm. I think sometimes you can reach a um, a place where there's kind of an inertia working on you if Mm -hmm. you're just closed in and like you're really focused on the work, but you're not out living life. Sure. I think
2: that's true. And I think that that's the thing writers get caught up on because a lot of them are like, where'd you come from? And I just think that it's nice to come from elsewhere. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like you don't need to be known, so to speak, in the writing world, right? I mean, you sort of should just be out doing things and then writing interestingly
0: but eventually you know obviously this book took hold of you yeah in the middle of what like where were you when you started to say okay let's do this i'm gonna well book.
2: i was back in new york and i was the running the organization village health works and i um in 2011 i was like i'm going to write this book i had no time to do it because i was going between burundi and new york and then at the time i was in a relationship which had me going between israel burundi and new york oh my and then God. at some point i was going between dominica israel burundi and new york i had a very Wait, global what's dominica? life that's a caribbean island oh, oh, oh.
0: okay yeah. I, I would i would say dominica but it's dominica oh, that's interesting yeah okay
2: um yeah so i I, it's, I decided that i wasn't so i wasn't writing a sentence anymore before i was always writing i would wake up at 4 a.m and make something but at this stage, because life was so busy, I wasn't writing a single sentence, and I was just so tired of it. And so I wrote a book proposal, um, and then I went and tried to sell that you with my agent. agent.
0: Who's your agent? Uh,
2: at the time, my agent was Jen Awe at the Wiley Agency. and um, And I got rejected over and over again, 20-plus hmm. times, I think, by publishers. And, and, but I finally ended up with Grove, you know, who I'm very, you know, I love that you're making I'm them look good by Grove.
0: You're, you're making them look wise. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and so who's your agent now?
2: So my agent now is Suzanne Gluck at William Morris.
0: Okay. Yeah. 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 I always ask that because people listening love to know. Sure. Um. And, and you like your agent.
2: I do. Yeah. Everybody I do like, like my sir, agent. Right. You know, I mean, I don't think you can say on air if you don't like your agent, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's not a thing we would do.
0: By the way, I, I, for people listening, uh, you know, Sarah just held up two middle fingers as she said that. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay to mention that. I love Suzanne. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're your advocate, you know? They're yeah. your advocate. And no, writer- she
2: really is. And she's a total fighter. And um. You know, we we've been fighting some interesting battles, and you know, she she's a champion of mine, and I really admire her.
0: What about uh, film rights? So,
2: the, yeah, I don't know. I'm very uh, not interested in thinking about film rights. You know,
0: you wouldn't want to write the script.
2: I'm scared to imagine a film of this, what though. About- though being with the director makes me very clear about the fact. That films are not the same as books. Of that they're distinct things and you have to release and let it be a different animal. But I, I would want my partner, because I love and admire her work and know the care she takes to make the film.
0: And your partner again is? Dee Reese, Reese.
2: The brilliant, incredible director so, of Pariah and Mudbound.
0: But uh, this is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I would strongly like, or I would, I would very much like to see this as a multi-part.
2: Maybe a limited series.
0: That's what I mean. That's what I mean. I like, can see that. Just because it's a big story. And I mm-hmm. know, you know what, you can, like, with in the right hands, an adaptation yeah. can be rendered beautifully. It would be, certainly wouldn't be the whole book, but they might be able to extract its essence in a sure. way that could fit inside of a 90-minute movie. But, man, I could see, like, a four or five part.
2: A limited series. I would write the limited series if D directed it. If my partner directed it, because I I love her work, I'm obviously biased. That's a slam dunk. i uh, but but I think we also don't want to encroach, you know. Encroach on. We what? want to have this, you know. We're very, we we each have the space to do our creative work mm. individually. So this would be the one moment where we'd sort of cross.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's you like, know? yeah. I mean, as creative people, I can imagine. But this just seems like you got to do it. But
2: I also have always imag- imagined a play of this book. Interesting. I can totally see it. And it's it's a big thing in my head.
0: I could see like... I, I'm seeing like the curtains open and I'm seeing like the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? or
2: Or my brother Carl sitting on a patch of green grass. Yeah. Is visually interesting.
0: Well, I am going to... I'm going to put, you know, we're putting out the vibes here now. Let's hope it manifests. I'd love to see it. I have good feelings for what it's worth. I keep telling you, I have like a sixth sense. I think that this book mm. is, um, I can feel it. It's resonating with people. It certainly resonated, um, with me and I'm just grateful to have a chance to talk with you at this moment. Um, you know, as you're seeing it out into the world Thank you. and it's just been such a pleasure meeting you and talking with you.
2: It's been, this has been incredibly Amazing, And I felt so at home with you. Thank you.
0: All right, everybody. There you go. That is Sarah M. Broom. What a delight, right? Her book, her memoir, is called The Yellow House. It is available now from Grove Press. It is long-listed for the National Book Award in nonfiction. And you should get your copy immediately. The book, again, is called The Yellow House. You can find Sarah M. Broom online at sarahmbroom.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah M. Broom. Thanks to Kill Rock Stars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thank you to the Preservation Hall Jazz Band for the uh, interstitial music. It's a little on the nose, but it feels apropos, right? Come on. I had to do some New Orleans music. What you're listening to right now is a song called Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone. And then up at the top uh, was a song called Careless Love by the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. If you would like to write to me, the address one more time is letters at otherppl.com. Tell me a story. Tell me what you think. Just let me know uh, what's on your mind. If you want to follow this program on Twitter, the handle is at OtherPPL. The official website is OtherPPL.com. If you want to support the show, tip your server, you can do that at Patreon.com slash OtherPPLPod. Don't forget as well that you can also uh, get the Other People app. It's a free app. This show has its own official app. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. You can get it wherever you get apps. It's free. 600 episodes in the books. 600 episodes. I don't even know how much. I, I, I wonder what the total runtime is. It's over 600 hours, that's for sure. It's probably over 700 hours, you know, 700 hours or 800 hours if you add it all up. What does that mean? So I will be back next week with another episode. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be quite yet. I'm still sorting out my slate, but there will be another episode coming your way in just a few days thank you for listening everybody thank you for uh, eight years of whatever this is I will talk to you soon and I'm just going to let the band play okay all right